Good morning, church. It is, uh, it's great to see everybody here today on this uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving. So whether you're, whether you're here or whether you're joining us online today, we just want to welcome you. And um, we're, we're excited uh, that we are all together and, uh, and just worshiping God in, in song and reading his word today and uh, just, just being able to be together as the, uh, as the body of Christ. So um, we, are, we are continuing today our trek in the, uh, in the book of Philippians. And uh, we have this Sunday, and then we have one more Sunday next week uh, where we will wrap up our time in Philippians, and then we're going we're gonna to kind of transition after, after that, and uh, we'll, we'll get to, uh, we'll turn our attention to Christmas, I guess. So, um, but today, we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So if you, if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through verse 9 today in Philippians 4. While you're getting there, while you're kind of navigating your way there to Philippians, let me kind of lay the framework for, for where we're going to go with this passage. And, and I'm, I'm going to do that by, by talking about something that I, had not, I, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with, um, living in North Carolina for the last 20 years, living kind of away from the coast. We're going to talk about hurricanes and uh, tropical storms. So you guys know, as I'm sure you're well aware, we had a, we had a tropical storm here. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, blew through, and there wasn't a lot of damage, um, especially not where we were. But uh, you know, we had we had we had some wind and we had a ton of rain. Um, it could have been a lot worse, and uh, I'm sure that you know, in, in the past, they they have been. Um, you know, a few decades ago, the the state of Florida uh, they they made some uh, some minimum building standards for for home construction. Uh, just to, in a way to kind of kind of alleviate or or you know minimize the uh, the losses from from hurricanes and uh, and you see it if you've seen a house being built you can you can see some of these things so um, I, where we come from this isn't the case right but you see a house and that first floor is being built and it's cinder blocks right so they basically build up the the uh, the first floor of the house with cinder blocks and you know that's supposed to to help kind of lay a good firm foundation for the, for the home. Uh, a lot of homes in Florida have hurricane windows. And if you, if you don't have a hurricane window, then a lot of times what you'll see is the, those screws on the side of the windows where you can board up and you know, easily screw those boards into, into the windows. And then um, we've never had this before, but uh, when, we, when we moved down here, we learned that, that our, our roof has roof straps. I mean, that's a little unsettling. I mean, just the idea that your roof has to be, you live somewhere where your roof has to be strapped onto your house. It, it, maybe it sounds a lot worse than it actually is, but you know, it's, a, it's one of those things that, that, that we have in Florida because apparently winds can blow your roof off and, uh, and, it's, and it's happened. So they, they now, they require new construction homes. They require uh, those to have roof straps. And so all these things are supposed to help your home weather dangerous storms that are going to come, they're gonna come. We live in Florida, right? And they're meant to provide a good foundation for your, for your home. And then, there's, and then there's the slab, right? There's the slab that, that my home and a lot of other homes in Florida are, are built on. And uh, you know, basically, they, they're, when they're building a home on a slab, they, they, they level the ground, they pour about a foot of concrete on the, on the ground, and, and that's, the, that's the foundation. It's supposed to be a firm foundation for your, for your home. Supposed to, right? So 
this couple of weeks ago, we had this tropical storm come through, and uh, we, we wake up. A lot of the storms, it didn't always seem like storms happen overnight. Well, overnight, it rained a ton. We wake up in the morning, we get out of the bed, and our bedroom floor is soaked. If you've, never, if you've never gotten up out of the bed, like when you first wake up, if you've never stepped onto a wet floor, good on you. Because it, it's, it's not the way you want to, it's not the way you want to wake up, right? All these things, you know, we, you know, in home building and everything else, all these other areas in our lives, we try to do things to lay firm foundations, right? In all kinds of areas, but despite our best efforts, our attempts at firm foundations, they crumble oftentimes because of the reality of the fallen world that we live in. We try our best. But sometimes it doesn't work out, right? And so this brings us to our main idea for the day. So main idea today is the Lord provides a sure foundation, right? That's it. The Lord provides a sure foundation for us. And, and we're going to see this as we go throughout these first nine verses in uh, Philippians chapter 4, um, we're going to see various ways that, that, that foundations happen, that the Lord gives foundations for believers, um, foundations for, for faith in different areas in, in our life. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to break this, this section up into three different parts, and we're going to have a point for each part, but... I'm not going to give you the points until the end of each section, all right? So just so you know that, if you're taking notes, just so you know that, that you know, I'm going to go through a section, I'll give you the point at the end of the section, and, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of, just so you're not waiting to write the point like normal. But for now, that main idea is the Lord provides a sure foundation. And so, and Paul, he, he confirms this idea, in the, in the very first chap, very first verse of, of chapter 4, he says, in verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So first, we see Paul in this verse, he's, he emphasizes his, his deep affection for the church in Philippi. The Greek word for, for long for here. It, it refers to just this, this, this sense of pain caused by separation from loved ones. Remember Paul, he, he evangelized Philippi. He planted a church there a little more than a decade earlier. He loves the church in Philippi. He brought them the gospel. He labored with them. He saw them grow in their faith. He saw them take that faith and extend it to other people. These are the people that any pastor any church planner, any believer for that matter, would long to be with. He calls them his joy and crown. The joy Paul had, it wasn't, it wasn't a result of his, of his current circumstances. Remember, he was writing this letter on, in house arrest in Rome. His joy is in the church. And the crown that he was referring to is, is like a laurel wreath that an athlete would receive for winning a race. It was, a, it was a symbol of success for an athlete, right? And then for Paul, it's success in seeing what was happening in the church in Philippi. He was encouraged to see this church in Philippi thriving. But, but even in their thriving, he warned them to stand firm. 
So in that first verse, we see him say, stand firm, church. See, Paul knew that the church would face opposition. He knew that evil forces would, would seek to tear down the church. And this is a, this is a warning for, for every church, for every believer in all time. Not just then. It's, this is for us as well today. We should stand firm, church. We should stay alert. And no matter how great things seem to be at the time, no matter how well we're, we're clicked in with God, clicked into his word, clicked in in prayer, our quiet time, no matter how well our life is going, opposition is going to come. It's going to happen. Sometimes we see that opposition coming from outside the church, Sometimes we see that opposition coming from inside the church. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he says. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. These, these two women, they were, they were prominent members of the church. Paul doesn't say it here, but, but they may have been among those first women who, who Paul met when he came to preach the gospel for the very first time. These women were meeting for prayer, and they may have been there in the very beginning when he came to, to share the gospel for the very first time. He doesn't, he doesn't say it. Uh, but they may have been there. You can, I'd encourage you to go back and read that story in, in Acts chapter 16. But regardless of whether they were there in the beginning or, or not, it's, it's clear that they were, they were a part of the fabric of the church today at this point in this, in this chapter, in this letter. But there was an issue. There was an issue between these two women. There was, there was a problem between them. It, it, it may have been a personal conflict. They may have been disagreeing about, about something in the, in the work of the church, but you know, Paul doesn't, he doesn't explicitly say what that, what that issue was, but we know that there was one, and it was, a, it was a big deal. It was a big enough deal for Paul to feel like he needed to mention it in this letter. Paul's ask here is that they agree in the Lord. Now, your, your translation, I, I'm preached from the uh, ESV, your translation may say Paul wants them to be of the same mind or to be in harmony with one another. However, your translation says it, we can be sure that the spiritual stability of the church, it depends on the mutual love and peace between believers. But where does that spiritual stability come from? Well, Paul, Paul says these women labored together with him and others in the church. They labored in what? They labored together in the gospel. He says it. He says it clearly in verse three. Don't miss it. He says they labored together in the gospel, nothing else. The gospel was their focus. It was the focus of the church. It was the focus of their labor. Their labor was to get that message out to the people who needed to hear it. That brings us to our first point today. Point one, the gospel is the foundation of the church. The gospel is the foundation of the church. So if we, if we want to go back to to my home's uh, faulty foundation illustration, I mean, we can, I guess we can think of the gospel as the slab. That might sound kind of weird. Um, I don't know, maybe, well, it's kind of weird to say that. But you get the point, right? The gospel is the starting place 
for the church. There's no other foundation that can withstand the fiery darts and constant attacks from the enemy. Even if, even if the entire structure of the church were to be destroyed, the gospel will remain. It is what it is, and it will remain. No matter how we distort it, no matter how we try to change it to fit our, our own desires or the political narrative of the day, we can add words like social or prosperity before the gospel, but the gospel is always what it has been, and it will not change. It will not change. There's nothing else that has the power of God to save. Paul says it in another letter to the church in Rome. He says in Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of, ex of its exclusiveness. He's not ashamed that it doesn't create a safe space for what God calls sinful behavior. Gospel is what it is, and it will not change no matter what. So one more thing. One more thing before we leave this section. There will be disagreements in the church. Take it to the bank. All right, there's no doubt about it. We, I mean, we see it. We see it in the early church. We see it in this letter. We see it today. But disagreements are not necessarily disqualifiers for salvation. I mean, even though these women were, were having issues, Paul makes the point that their names, among others, were written in the book of life. Another way of, of saying that is although they disagreed on some things, these women were both believers and they were both saved. More than, more than any other group of people, Christians should strive for unity, especially in the church. I mean, it's, that's hard to argue that the church shouldn't be unified. But there's, there's a caution here. There's a reason the gospel is the one thing Paul referenced in this letter, in this verse. It's the only thing he referenced. There's, there's a reason why. He didn't lay out a laundry list of everything that the church was doing, all of their different things that, that they were involved with. He didn't, there was no laundry list there. You know, I've done this with these women. I've done this with these women. They've been a part of this, and they've been a part of that. He didn't name any of those things. I, had, I have no idea if they did things like that or not. But if they did, he wouldn't have to mention them because those are things that flow out of the gospel. They flow out of a people who are sold out for the gospel. There's, there's one thing that he did mention, and that was the gospel. And that's because the gospel is foundational for the church. It's what should inform all of our thoughts, all of our emotions. It's what we should put up against every idea, every theory. The gospel is our starting place. And, if, and if, a, if an idea or a theory or a cause, if it doesn't flow out of the gospel and point back to Christ, then we should be suspicious. And ultimately, we may be forced to get uncomfortable and call it what it is. Now, I've, 2020 has been a rough year, right? It's been a rough year for a lot of people. And I've, it's been a rough year for the church. I've quoted this, ver, this not a verse, I've quoted this, this quote by J.C. Ryle um, a number of times this year. He said, unity without the gospel is worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. 
Said another way, unity apart from the gospel is unity in hell. There's no salvation in unity. For Euodia and Syntyche, their disagreement wasn't in the gospel. It was in something else. It had to have been in something else. We know this because Paul never would have told them to unify over a false gospel. Or if they were teaching something antithetical to the gospel. Unity is is a good thing, but calling for unity for the sake of unity has never saved anyone. That's because unity for unity's sake requires compromise. We've never compromised medicine designed to make us well by diluting it or adding something else to it. And so church, we, we should never add to, dilute, or compromise the gospel for unity's sake. A compromised gospel is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Scripture's clear that whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. We, the church of Jesus Christ, we should reject anything that doesn't align with Scripture, that doesn't align with the gospel, and divides the people of God and and distracts us from his mission. All right, so that that takes us then to... uh, to verses four through seven. All right, so verses four through seven, listen to what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, earlier in this letter, in in chapter three, uh, well, earlier in this letter, Paul just, he tells the church, he's reminding them to rejoice. But this is the second time. First time was in chapter three that he says, rejoice in the Lord. And he says it again here in, in chapter four. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He's reminding the church that, that the Lord is the object of our joy. Not our circumstances or anything else that this, this world has to offer. Instead, he's saying the joy of the believer should rest in the unassailable, unchanging relationship to the sovereign Lord. And if we're rejoicing in the sovereign Lord, then our reasonableness will be made known. As he says in verse five, other translations, they say, let your gentleness be known. This is another way of saying that we should, we should extend mercy to others. It's a mercy that, that, that results in, in leniency toward the faults and failures of others. Scripture tells us that that God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. I mean, what does that tell you? I mean, it tells me that that we're desperate people who are in need of a whole new set of mercies every day we wake up. If God, who who is holy and righteous, gives us a new set of mercies every day, then that should instruct us to do the same others. We should give that same mercy to others who are, who are struggling with sin issues or struggling with, with anything in their lives. But it doesn't mean that we give license to people to, for instance, remain in their sin. We don't give license to, for them to do that. No, we should take that as an opportunity to disciple and to instruct, to instruct people. As the, as the church of Christ, we're, we're called to be reasonable, to be gentle with others, to allow repentance and, 
and healing to happen. Why? Paul tells us at the end of verse 5 that the Lord is at hand. This isn't a, this isn't a, a reference to, to Jesus' return. Yes, Jesus will return one day and he will right every wrong with perfect justice. But this is more of a reference to the, to the presence of God in our lives. It's a reference to the Spirit of God in us and the fruit of the Spirit that extends from us as believers. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Extending to other people. And then we get to verse 6 and 7, which are, these are great tattoo verses. I'm not a tattoo guy, but if you're, if you're a tattoo guy or, guy or gal, I mean, th- these are great tattoo verses. If you're not, then um, you know, these are good ones maybe to write on a sticky note on your, on your mirror. And so you can memorize these, this, these verses and live by them. So here's, here's what they say. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't get anxious? Everybody does. Everybody does from time to time. Sometimes it's about big things in our lives. Sometimes it's about really small things that, that we make big in our lives. I, you know, I remember when, when Marianne and I were, were, were engaged, we were, we were a year removed from college. Up until that time, I, I was responsible for myself. That was it, which basically means I didn't have a whole lot of responsibility. And in fact, I, I was probably at the lowest point of anxiety in my life. We, we still laugh about it today, but, but when we got married, everything that I owned fit in one box, like one box. That was it. And it was kind of a small box. And, and Miriam will tell you that there was nothing in that box that was valuable at all. It was just, it was just a bunch of stuff. And I still have that box still after 22 years. Everything that was in that box 22 years ago is still in that box. I still, I still have it. And nothing's displayed in our house from that box. Tells you something right there. I had no anxiety, and it was, it was great. But when we got married, that, it changed, right? I was now responsible for somebody else. I mean, within a short time, I went from, from college to marriage to grown-up. And being a grown-up... Being a grown-up is a hard change for somebody who the day before their entire life fit in a box. I had a lot to be anxious about. I didn't know how to handle it. I wasn't, I wasn't walking with the Lord at the time, so I turned to, to worldly fixes. Nothing I tried help helped. This is going to sound bad, but stick with me here. It got worse. 18 months after we got married, we had our first child. Now I was responsible for two people. I mean, I could go on and on. We got six kids, so I could go on and on and on, right? But you get the point, right? What I want you to hear is in this very short personal story, right? I used, the, I used that first person pronoun I over a dozen times. I mean, if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, listen, Jesus did not leave his throne in heaven come to earth, experience a brutal, painful, humiliating death on the cross so that we could live our lives riddled with anxiety and living in the first person I pronoun. He not only wants us to lay our sin on him, but he wants our anxiety too. 
He wants everything. He wants it all. All the burdens of this world, everything he wants. Everything. Matthew 11.30, Jesus, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is, a, this is an easy illustration here. I mean, a donkey or an ox, they, they wear a yoke around their neck and they, they drag a plow through a field. The weight, the burden of that plow is transferred from the farmer to the animal. Brothers and sisters, transfer whatever is calling you anxiety in your life to Jesus. He's ready. He'll take all of it. Take all of it to him through prayer, through supplication, with thanksgiving, to the one who can free you from the burdens of this world. And Paul says that if you do, we will have unexplainable peace. Have you ever had anybody ask you why you're so happy? And you're like, I don't know. Unexplainable peace we will get if we, if we do that. It's a peace that, that, that will guard you from anxiety, from doubt, from fear, from distress. All that can be found only through a relationship with and dependence on the Prince of Peace. This brings us to our second point. Point two, Jesus is the foundation for peace. Jesus is the foundation for peace. And then, and then Paul, for, for the second time in this letter, he, he says, finally. Which is, which is the word that kind of makes you think he's wrapping up, right? First time he used it was actually in chapter, this isn't even the first time he said finally. This first time was in chapter three. So again, in chapter four, he says, finally. You think he's wrapping up. Um, maybe he was wrapping up in chapter three, but he decided, yeah, he's got more stuff to say. There's, there's no theological significance around that word, finally. Um, I think it just gave pastors for the last 2,000 years an opportunity to say finally and then preach for another 20 or so minutes. For us, it really actually does mean that we're almost done. All right, I can promise you that because we're having our city group over to the house uh, today right after church and we got a turkey in the oven, so we got we to gotta get home. All right? Um, so... So that said, we're going to take a, we'll take a look at these, these last couple of verses, and that, that'll be our time today. So let's uh, look at chapter, uh, verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul gives us, he gives us, in these verses, he gives us a list, and he says these things are the things that we should think about. And not, and not just think about, but these are the things that we should live by in our lives. Said another way, whatever's, whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy comes from God. And we should live our lives according to these things. If you're counting, that's eight, eight different things that Paul says we should look for. I'm not, I'm not going to go through all eight, okay? Instead, I'm gonna, we're going to dig into two or three of these, dig into them, and I think you'll get the point of the, of the whole section here if we do that. 
First thing Paul tells us to, to look for are things that are true. It, it's interesting that, that the first thing he said was true. Look for things that are true because if you don't have truth, then everything else doesn't matter. Everything else kind of crumbles after that. He wants us to seek truth. Of the seven billion people or so in this world, above anybody, Christians should care about truth. There's a lot of misinformation going around today in every aspect of our lives. We can't escape it. Not even in the church, unfortunately. Don't believe me? Do this. Do a, do a search for Christian articles. Keep it, to, keep it to Christian stuff, right? Keep Christian articles, blog posts, books, within the past year or so on the subject of truth. Tell me what you find. Then do a search for writings on the grievance culture and tell me what you find. Problem, the problem, the pastors and authors who, the problem that they have is that truth doesn't sell in 2020. And to be fair, it hasn't sold for a long time. You'd be hard pressed to find a way to, in America, to today to monetize truth. Doesn't sell. It's, it's kind of out of style. And that's the, that, that again is the unfortunate reality of the, the world that we live in. But, but listen, Christian, we, we have to separate ourselves from all the noise. We have to separate ourselves from the, from the lies and distortions that the enemy wants us to believe. We have to use discernment, wisdom, logic. I mean, God gives us the tools to know the difference between truth and lies. Use it. Use these tools that he gives us. Whatever is True is found in God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and in God's word. You know, we, we also, we live in a world of fact checkers. Everywhere you look, getting fact checked about stuff. Outside of wishing somebody a happy birthday on social media, you can't post anything without the system fact checking you or somebody that you're connected with fact checking you. Questioning what you're saying. But who are the fact checkers? And what's their, what is their standard of truth? I remember some 15 years ago at work, um, there were some people on our, our team kind of, uh, kind, of, kind of elevating the number of miles that they drove and reporting it on expense reports to get a little extra mileage reimbursement. They were, they were cheating, right? People, they were inflating that mileage so that they would get more money. Our managers knew it. They knew that it was happening. Um, it wasn't so egregious that it was, you know, a fireable offense at that point. So, so our boss, he, he invited this guy to come in and speak to our, to our region, to you know, about 100 people or so. And, and it was all about telling the truth and why that was important. And the guy, the guy that spoke to us about telling the truth, he got up there and he, he told us that he had not told a lie since 1984. 
immediately, I, I immediately thought the guy was lying. It was a horrible way to start, right? I haven't told a lie since 1984. Liar. I, I thought he was lying as soon as he said that, but, but whatever, all right? What caught my attention was, was when he said, I don't know who said this, but the truth will set you free. And my ears immediately perked up, right? Because I, I thought this whole thing was, was trash, this whole, this whole you know, presentation this guy had. So my, my ears immediately, they, they perked up. And, and uh, when he was finished, I took the opportunity. I walked up to him after the meeting. And, and I informed him that, in fact, Jesus said that. And he could find that in John chapter 8, verse 32. Telling truth is a good thing. I think we would all agree with that. But what is our standard of truth? And of course, the, the Sunday school answer that, that we would hear from the kids is Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the standard of truth. John 8.32 says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what, and what or who is truth? Jesus. Jesus is. If we, if we know him, then he will set us free. He's also the, the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. John chapter 1 also tells us that, that he is the word. Jesus is the word of God. So if you're, if you're big into connection points, then the Bible, God's word, is the standard of truth. God's word is the standard of truth for our lives. And then, and then Paul says, he says in these verses, he says, whatever is honorable, Again, maybe your translation says noble, whatever is noble. The Greek word there translates to whatever is worthy of respect. And as Christians, we should fix our gaze on or meditate on things that are worthy of, of, of awe and adoration, not those things that are profane. But how do we determine what's worthy? Well, we, we find that in God's word. And that requires us to be in God's word, to read it. Don't allow others to tell you what the Bible says and just take it without questioning it. Question me. If you don't agree with something I'm saying, please, let's talk about it. Requires us to, to know our Bibles. You know, we, we live in a time where technology allows us to have almost unlimited amount of knowledge at our fingertips. There's no shortage of knowledge available to us today. But I would argue that although we have more knowledge available, we're possibly the least knowledgeable people to live in hundreds of years. My opinion. That's because few people actually read and investigate for themselves. We've gotten away from classical education in this country, in our schools, where children, they're, they're taught to think and to formulate their own opinions and to argue those opinions. Now we just hit the share button on social media. We're lazy. There's no shortage of people who are waiting to tell you what to think. Church, I, I challenge you. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They didn't just accept what Paul was telling them about Jesus. They took the time to search the scriptures to see if what he was telling them 
lined up with Scripture. Be a Berean. Be a Berean today. If we take the time and dig into Scripture, then God, God's Word will tell us what is honorable. God's Word will tell us what's honorable. We just have to read it. We just have to read it. These are the, these are the first two, so you can kind of, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, you can kind of see where the pattern's going, right? I mean, we, we find these things, these things that they inform us, they, they, uh, they inform us on virtuous living, and we find how to do those things in, in God's word. And then Paul ends this section in verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. All these things that Paul was telling the church in Philippi to look for were things that we find in Scripture today. I mean, think about it. The church in Philippi, I mean, they, they, didn't, have, they didn't have Bibles. They didn't have the Bible app. They could, they could pull up and, you know, look these things up. Um, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't just Google something or if, um, or if you're so inclined, they couldn't duck, duck, go something and, and figure out um, what, that, you know, what that meant. They couldn't do a search like that searching how to live a virtuous life. They would, have, they would have likely had copies of Old Testament scripture. Uh, possibly they would have had uh, some, some New Testament writings, but they didn't, they didn't have what we had. Their, their instruction on living a life that resembled Jesus would have, would have mostly come from the example of Paul and from other believers who were, who were ahead of them in their faith. Paul is calling for the Philippian church to, to follow the truth of God proclaimed along with the example of truth lived by Paul before them. And if they do that, then the God of peace will be with them. We, we call this discipleship. And the Bible has a lot to say on the subject of, of discipleship. That, that takes us to our, our final our final point, point three, God's word is the foundation for our lives. God's word, church, nothing else. God's word is the foundation for our lives. And let me, let me, leave, you, let me leave you with this as we, as we wrap up. All of these things, and especially these eight things that we, that we heard from Paul at the end, Jesus encompasses all of these things. I would, I would challenge you, if, if you are a Christian here today, if you're watching online, if you're a believer, get in your Bible today. If you're not already, every day, every day, be in the word, be in prayer. I'm not going to quote him. I guess it's not a quote if it's not exact. But Martin Luther, Martin Luther, he said, at one point he said, I have so much to do today. I'm so busy today. I need to spend an extra two hours in prayer. It's not how we live our lives. If we have a busy schedule, we say, wait, God. I've got other things to do. Christian, if you 
if you are in your word, if you are praying, spending that time with God, preparing yourself to be someone who can lead others. No matter where you are, believer, you're ahead of someone. Who's following you? Who's looking to you for the example of how to live? Take someone. Follow someone. We all need that. No matter where you are, we all need that. And if, if you're not a Christian today, there is, there is nothing. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. All of our, all of our sin, some of the things that we talked about, that Paul talked about in this letter today, all of these things are things that separate us from God. He is, God is holy. And that word holy, it just means set apart. We could never stand before a holy, righteous God in our sin, in our shame. So Jesus came. He came to, to sacrifice himself, to put himself in your place so that when you, and we will all stand before God one day, but when you go and stand before God, Our sin will not be on us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Not only that, we will not even be able to remember our sin. But it's only Jesus who can save us. There's nothing absolutely nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God. So if you're not a believer today, I, listen, speak to me. Speak with someone. Hear about the gospel, about what's going on in, in your life. Get in contact with us. We'd love to, to talk to you more. We'd love to talk to you more about, about the gospel, about Jesus about what that means for salvation and for eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you, God, for who you are. Lord, you are holy and righteous and good. Lord, you are the great I am. Lord, there is none like you. Lord, we just pray, God, that if there is someone here who doesn't know you, who's not placed their faith in you, Lord, that they would do it today because we don't, we don't know when you will return, but Lord, your word says you will and we believe it. We know that you are coming back. Lord, before it's too late, I pray, God, that you would touch the hearts of those who need your gospel, who need your salvation today. 
It's in your holy name we pray today. Amen.